Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Inspiring you to bring God back into the conversation of the day. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning. All right, I do appreciate that some of you uh, have been up long enough to have not only heard the first hour, but man, you're already on the socials letting me know uh, what you're thinking about things. Always appreciate that. You can tweet me. I'm at Carmen LaBerge. You can always email me, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com, and you can text me during the show, 877-933-2484. All right, uh, so the Pulitzer Prizes have been given out, lots of Lots of folks taking note of the New York Times 1917 series and just asking, you know, asking the 1917. That doesn't sound right. What year was it, Paul? Uh, 1617. Yeah, Yeah, thank you. (laughs) 1617 series. You can tell how much of it I read, Um, uh, you know, highlighting, um, you know, whether or not uh, redacted redacted views of history are what we want to award prizes to. Well, the Atlantic did apparently not want to be left out of the production of a series related to conspiracies and the role that they think those conspiracies are uh, are playing in the shaping of society today. So I'm just letting you know that The Atlantic, which a lot of people read, you may not read, but a lot of people do read it, they are rolling out starting today this series called Shadowland about the rise of mainstream conspiracism. Uh, and so I just think that uh, because they don't want to just talk about bad information or bad politics or bad thinking, they want to talk about paranoia, those who profit from um, mistrust and the purveying of what they view as things that aren't true, which leads to a conversation, by the way, um, in this series, this Shadowland series. It leads to a conversation about truth. Now, that's a helpful conversation for us to be engaged in. They want an exaltation of empirical truth. And so here is going to be my immediate question. I am now going to begin using that as the way I scrutinize what that particular particular publication puts forward. And when their articles are not based on the exaltation of empirical truth, like let's say in regard to gender dysphoria or the, the delusion of transgenderism, let me tell you, friends, I'm going to lift that up to them, and I'm going to say, now, look, if um, if empirical truth is good over here, then it ought to be good over here as well. And so when we are talking about who we trust to be purveyors of news and information, we then become those who hold them accountable to whatever standard they say they're going to bring forward. So when uh, when somebody tells you that democracy dies in the dark, you can also tell them that truth dies in the dark and sin multiplies there. So let's shine a light on that. Or when somebody tells you that they want to see uh, the preservation and exaltation of empirical truth, you say, praise Jesus, because, by the way, he is the way and the truth and the life. So let's um, let's shine a little light on that as well. All right. Shining light with me today is my shiny friend, Peter Kapsner. Conversation with him up next. We'll be right
right, joining me now, Peter Kapsner. He has lots of fancy titles and letters before and after his name. Uh, and so, Peter, I am going to ask you, are the four horsemen of the apocalypse active? Because biblical scholars, quote unquote, claim that the book of Revelation seals are broken and the four horsemen of the apocalypse are now loose in the world. Oh, brother, that's a great way to start the morning here, <laughs> Carmen, on that segment. But no, we did, you, obviously you saw the article and we were talking about it a little bit. Uh, that there, Not surprising, right, that there would be some people, some corners of the wood, uh, world that would be making a claim. And this claim actually was more substantial than, than people just wondering about, right, if this is the end of the world. These were biblical scholars, I believe out of the UK, it was in a UK article, that were claiming that they actually can see the horsemen riding, that that this is the harbinger of the end. We are sort of in the great tribulation, as it were, that this global pandemic has kind of inaugurated into our world. And Boy, there's a lot of different directions you and I could go with this in terms of that which constitutes biblical scholarship. How do we know who's an expert? How do we know who to trust? And one of the places my mind went, and maybe you remember this too, is that when the, when the calendar turned to the year 2000, right, from 1999 to 2000, I'm sure there were many quote-unquote biblical experts that said that this is it. This is going to be the end of the world. And, and I remember when the calendar turned to the year 2000, first in Australia and that corner of the globe, we kind of, at least some people waited with bated breath. Was this the end where planes going to drop out of the sky? This this certainly would mean that the seals have been broken, the horsemen are riding, and that's that. All right. So I want people to read widely on this topic. I'm certainly not denigrating people who are uh, students of of prophecy. And, you know, and let me just be really, really clear. Here is a statement I know to be absolutely verifiably un, uh, un, unquestionably true. We are one day closer to the end times than we were yesterday. Absolutely. We are one day closer today to the return of Christ than we were yesterday. So um, is Christ coming back? Yes, absolutely. He has promised to do so. I have absolutely nothing but confidence that Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, we are to be ready for it. And so, yes, let us be looking up. Let us be paying attention. Um, there are signs uh, in, in the heavens above and on the earth below. No question about that. But are the four horsemen of the apocalypse running uh, ramshod over the earth? No, mm. no. I mean, read Revela- read the book of Revelation and understand um, what that language means and what must happen before uh, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are loosed. And so experience life in that context. All right. Uh, Tua. Tagovailoa. Do we have that right? Tagovailoa. Tago Vilo. Here, here's what I'm just going to say. He's number one. He is number one. You're right. He's number one. Talk with us. Tell us, uh, for those of you who uh, have not been um, watching the Southeastern Conference play football over the last few years, you may not know who Tua is, but Tua is a brother in Christ, and uh, and he has been the quarterback, I think, at the University of Alabama, but Am I right about that? Yeah, you got it. He was uh, Alabama Crimson Tide, a really well-accomplished quarterback down there. He did experience some injuries during his run at Alabama, and uh, but but he was somebody when you watched him play. And, and Carmen, I do enjoy college football. I would watch Alabama, and and the Crimson Tide sort of drive me nuts because they just win every year, and and they're always sort of that eight hundred pound gorilla in the room. So he was a hard guy for me to cheer for, admittedly, because he was just. Uh, so filled with, I, I mean, courage is not the right word, but but um, he, he had uh, the ability to sort of raise up above his teammates, above the game itself almost, and, and put the team on his shoulders and, and lead him to victory so often. And little did I know that he's actually alongside of this incredible football talent. 
he's a deeply humble and devout mm-hmm. believer. And so he was injured. There were questions whether he would actually get drafted in the first round of the recent NFL draft. And he did go number five to the Miami Dolphins. And he is. He's wearing number one. He's the first quarterback of the Miami Dolphins to ever have number one on his jersey. And it's because, by his account, he wants to be playing only for an audience of one, which is quite a testimony when you have somebody who could absolutely be building a global brand at this point. He played for the most accomplished institution in college football in these last 20 years. He obviously is getting drafted in a city that has a lot of visibility globally in the city of Miami. He can take a Dolphins team that historically has been one of sort of the the gold franchises of the NFL, and he could sort of resurrect that franchise. He's got everything in front of him to build a brand for himself. And what does he say? He says, no, I'm playing for an audience of one. His, uh, if you go to his Twitter feed, which is Tua.T, Peter, of the people you might follow, maybe you could follow uh, Tua, and um, that would increase your Twitter followership. Um, <laughs> his, uh, you know, what you what you put as your tagline, especially if, you're, uh, if your name is Tua.T, which is, is, so, is 2 Corinthians 2, verse 9, okay? And so I'm just saying, like, he, uh, he leads with Scripture, um, and he wants people to know that he is playing for an audience of one, and so he's going to wear the number one on his jersey. You will also see him often often featured with um, that black stuff that, that athletes put on their face to keep the sun from directly, like, burning their eyeballs. Indeed. What would you... What would you call that? Stuff? Yeah, it's just it's eye black. Yep, they just call okay, it eye black. Eye black. Yep. Yep. So he wears his eye black in the shape of crosses on both of his cheeks. Well, and and what I appreciated about him too, and hearing a bit about his testimony, is sometimes it can feel a bit cliche. You know, an athlete will have a post game interview. Maybe they scored the winning touchdown, they made the winning basket, hit the winning home run, and they might just sort of have a quick nod of all glory to God or something along those lines. And and that's great. I, I love it when athletes do that. But I appreciated that in his uh, testimony with this interview, he went a little deeper and he said, you know, the greatest gift that God could have given us was his son. And then he said this, Carmen, it's not just a matter of hearing what Jesus Christ is. It's a matter of getting to know who Jesus Christ is, to really understand and really feel the identity of who you are because of things that he has done. And I'd say you can only find your identity through him if you know him. And, and it's that kind of statement that really lends an air of authenticity to his statement that I really only do want to play for Jesus. He really, You can't serve two masters. I'm not going to serve the master of football and the global brand. I am going to serve the master who is my king. Amen. I'm going to look forward to watching him play for the Miami Dolphins whenever that happens, um, because, you know, I'm going to be a fan of a guy who uh, is playing for an audience of one and knows who the one is and points other people to him. So I just love this story. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about little Richie um, and some examples from his life of how religion played a role. That conversation up next with Peter Kapsner. We'll be right back. Okay, openly admitting that we are moving from one area in which I have less expertise than Peter Kapsner to probably a second from <laughs> sports now to music. Oh, Let's dear. talk about 
Little little Richard. Yeah, boy. I mean, he was obviously a central figure of rock and roll, I think, probably in your childhood, Carmen. I know in mine's Paul Perot. I'm assuming he was in yours as well. Uh, not I mean, central, but I liked it. Good yeah. golly, Miss Molly. Well, good I mean, golly, right? Miss Molly. That's a little right? before my time. Yeah. You know, I'm <laughs> old, but not that old. <laughs> well, Carmen, clearly in our age category and demographic then, Little Richard, <laughs> he, he had an influence. And, you know, it was back at a time, too, when there weren't so many established musicians and musical figures. I mean, when you go back those 30, 40 years, there just weren't that many people that we could be aware of. It was what the news covered. It was what TV programs put on. It was concerts you'd go to. You didn't have access to so many forms of entertainment through the internet like we do today. And so there's a lot of rock and roll superstars, big names that really point back to Little Richard and the influence that he had. And Boy, what an interesting, intriguing, conflicted, flamboyant person that he was. Uh, And he really stood apart in the realm of music. What I didn't know is that in sort of his complicated life, faith really did play a central role. And uh, so you sent me this article here about all the different ways in which religion impacted his uh, entire life of music. I didn't know that he grew up the son of a, of a church deacon and, and, uh, and of a, a person who went to a Baptist church as well, and that he often played in church growing up. But, you know, the gospel music world often does inform and influence other forms of music, and he clearly was by all of those things. And his faith was part of his life moving forward. Again, however complex and complicated that was, it did seem to be authentically real. Yeah, so in a 1972 interview, he says, um, I was playing for a church. My grandfather was a preacher, uh, and um, and he was sharing this before his performance at London's Wembley Stadium. He says, I used to play for my preacher granddad every Sunday morning because he was uh, taking up collections. Well, I don't know, as I recall, about seven times, <laughs> you know, just one more penny, just one more quarter. And so I used to play um, these uh, this music um, while he was preaching. Um, however, because the words were not attached, uh, my my grandfather didn't know it. So he was he was playing these secular songs that he had written and recorded, right. which his grandfather had not heard. Right, but he was playing that in the context of these worship services. I just say that there's an there is an integration here, and he says. Um, that he considers his music sacred yeah. because he considers it, you know, as rendered unto the Lord. This is a this is a again a complex person. These are you know we're not singing tutti frutti as an anthem in church. I mean I recognize that, um, but when we talk about the way that the faith lives in a person and how they bring their gifts to bear in the marketplace of ideas of the day. He is an example. He, he absolutely is, Carmen. It's one of the things that we sometimes talk about in the ministry classes that I teach at the University of Northwestern. That uh, is, and we ask the question: Is there really a difference between sort of our sacred life, as it were, meaning our life as we understand ourselves as believers, following Jesus, going to church, being with the fellowship, uh, giving away parts of our lives, whatever that is, and then sort of our our secular life, which might be the job that we go to or the role we pay, play as parent or or anything along those lines, and that that distinction is a false one. We, our, our faith is to be brought to bear in every circumstance in our life. And, and I think a lot of people, and, and myself included, have experienced what I would call a disintegrated life, meaning that I find myself in multiple social environments, whether it be my job or, again, school, or it could be friendships, it could be uh, my, my home life, whatever it is. And I feel like I have to play four or five or six different roles because I'm disintegrated. I don't have any one thing holding me together. That's a really tiring life. 
worth when we live life that way. We get to sort of the pillow at the end of the day and think, oh, my word, I survived another day, but I got to get up and do this whole routine all over again. And I feel like I'm being pulled in so many different directions. And, and I think what we see as part of Little Richard's life is that, yes, he did have a complicated life and he had some complicated backstories. There were some incredibly redemptive moments, even in his own sexuality towards the end of his life, too. But he didn't see life as separate between sacred and secular. He lived an integrated life. Uh, however he understood that to be, he he was the same person throughout his day. I was, I was watching some of the coverage of his passing, and it was the the one comment that was made of him that really caught my attention that said, when you talked with Little Richard outside of the stage, when he was outside of the spotlight, he was the exact same person outside of the spotlight as he was when he was in the spotlight. And that speaks of an integrated life. And you can really only have that kind of integrated life if you're only serving one master. If you're saying, this is it. This is my life. I'm following Jesus. I don't always know how to apply that life into all of my social circumstances, but I'm not going to be split apart among all of them as if some of this world is sacred, some of this world is secular. No, it's all God's world, and we are to be ministers in the midst of every environment in which we find ourselves. And it's complicated. So please do not hear Peter Kapsner and I uh, suggesting that the ways in which uh, Little Richard lived his life um, and some of his more— Yeah, um, of course not. You know, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so let me uh, let me— pause and share this testimony um, from country music artist Tim Atwood, um, because he shares this story about Little Richard from several years ago. He said, I ran into him in the office of an accountant that we both use. And he said, one of the biggest shocks of my life, uh, Little Richard simply said to me, hey, I know who you are, Tim, and I've been following your career. And then, um, you know, Tim Atwood says that was a surreal moment for me. But then Little Richard sent his assistant to my car to present me with a Bible, mm. um, to tell me that wherever, whenever I do a show, make Jesus proud. Uh, Tim Atwood says it's the best advice anyone has ever given me. To most of the world, Little Richard was a bigger-than-life entertainer, and he certainly was. Um, but for me, he's always going to be the guy, the kind soul who encouraged me not only in my music, but cared enough to talk with me about my salvation. Yeah, it's do, a- yeah I mean, do we care enough to talk with people in our industry in our industry, whatever our industry is, do we care enough about them to talk with them about their salvation? Yeah, it's a brilliant testimony that you just read there, Carmen. And I think that if we're careful, if we have eyes to see, I, I think God gives us opportunities, right? I mean, God is always moving in a reconciling way in this world, meaning he's always calling people back to himself. And when we read in Corinthians that we are sort of these agents of reconciliation as though God himself is making his appeal through us, that, that is part of central to our task and our identity here in this world. And it doesn't mean you just go breaking down the doors and, and you pound through somebody's maybe social barriers and, and present the gospel in that way. But you do, with wisdom, look for opportunities to be able to share your faith and the hope that we have. I mean, we get back to this apocalypse st- stuff that you and I were talking about at the start of this segment. And, and the point of any kind of revelation literature is that there is a hope at the end of all of this, whether this mm-hmm. is the end with the coronavirus, whether the end is going to come another another time. The central point of that remains the same. Hope is waiting for us always. And Carmen, we always have opportunities, if we have eyes to see, to share that hope that is within us. Okay. Hey, do you um, do you read fiction and nonfiction? Or are you just like one one kind of reader? Oh, boy. I read them both. All of the above. Love Lord okay. of the Rings. That's fiction from what I understand. I wish it was nonfiction. <laughs> so, um, you know, I read mostly nonfiction because we feature so many um, you know, so many authors here who write nonfiction. 
But um, Charles Martin is up next, and he's um, he writes fiction. Now, let me just confess to you, I had never read a Charles Martin uh, work before. He's a New York Times bestselling author. But over the last two days, I have read The Waterkeeper. Okay. And so I am I am here to recommend it for your summer reading list. I am going to go pick that up, actually, this afternoon. I'm looking for a new book to read. And well, I probably can't get it this okay. afternoon. I'll this, have to get it online, right, at this point. But I'm going to get that book. Oh, no. I think you can get. You can probably get it from Paul if you ask nicely. <laughs> I'll do my best. Before you leave. But that means I, I won't have the copies to give away to our listeners. <laughs> oh, that's right. I don't, I don't, do, we have, do we have copies I to give away? I forgot to give you that note. Yes, <gasps> we have three right. copies I am to not going to take a copy from yeah. a listener right no. now. No. no, no. Don't take a copy from a listener. But... um. Uh, but let me just go ahead and say I'm super duper looking forward to the next conversation, even though this one has been really fun. I will absolutely pick up that That's book my in the segue. meantime, and I will try to, to at least be a few chapters in the next time we chat. Oh, my gosh. It's so fun. All Love right. It. Thanks, man. Yeah, talk, talk to you next soon. week. Bye. All right, joining me, Charles Martin, author of The Waterkeeper. Uh, Charles was on last year to talk about his book, What If It's True? Um, and he is a New York Times bestselling author. What If It's True was an exploration of the Bible as novel, new. Um, and this is a novel, The Waterkeeper. I can't wait to share it with you here next on Mornings with Carmen. We'll be right back. God surrounds us like the Pacific surrounds an ocean floor pebble. He is everywhere, above, below, on all sides. We choose our response, rock or sponge, resist or receive. Everything within you says harden your heart, run from God, resist God, blame God, but be careful. Hard hearts never heal. Spongy ones do. Open every pore of your soul to God's presence. Here's how. Lay claim to the nearness of God. He says in Hebrews 13, 5, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Grip this promise like the parachute it is. Repeat it over and over until it trumps the voices of fear. The Lord God is with you, and He is mighty to save. Cling to His character. Quarry from your Bible a list of deep qualities of God and press them into your heart. He is sovereign. You will get through this. This is Max Lucado. Joining me now, author Charles Martin. He has been on the program before. We have talked about his book, What If It's True, um, which if you have not read, um, is my must-read for 2019. My must-read for 2020, hmm, The Waterkeeper. Charles Martin joining me today. Welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks so much. So I don't want to give anything away like right about the book because it brings me right. such joy and delight to walk to walk through this kind of story um this is uh you're drawn I mean, a person is drawn into this narrative so quickly it is so compelling it moves very fast um and so i just want to say all of that i would love to um i would love to just uh say a list of of, of words and then have you pick up on any one of these threads um, and pull it? So sure. um, pseudonym versus, you know, real name. Tattoos, okay. that which is engraved on a wall or engraved on a back. Um, redemption. Uh, 
summer reading. Summer reading. Like, this is the best summer reading out there. And summer reading is just a really, gosh, that's just one of those points in the book where I was just like, ah. All right. So talk with us. Wow, those are some good ones. Um, The interesting thing about the whole tattoo deal was um, my character, Murphy, is just – He's he's really good at doing one thing, and he's done it a long time, and yet no one really knows it. And the only record that exists is the one that he keeps, and he keeps it in he keeps it on his person. And so I'll just I'll leave it at that. It was just sort of a fun way for me um, to to remember the names of all the people he's picked up. But let me back up just a second. Part of this part of this whole book grew out of it really kind of grew out of three things one was a trip i took on the intercoastal that i went from key west to north florida on the intercoastal 300 something miles beautiful trip made a neat place for setting the second thing that happened is i was i was on book tour about two years ago in north georgia at a hotel i was in between signings i got there about two o'clock in the afternoon checked in and i i had an experience that i'd never had which made me really angry which was a man um, got out of a very expensive car at a really seedy hotel, which is just where I happened to be staying. Seedy, and and it was just like a, it was more of a motel, okay. And he he propositioned me and asked me to join him in a sexual encounter he was having with several girls slash women in one of the rooms. And obviously I said no, and it made me really angry, but I started researching what was going on. And what I realized was the guy had inroads into like sex trafficking and um, he was just taking advantage of the girls. They rotated through this hotel and that really kind of hurt my heart. And long story short, I ended up one day in Matthew 18 Matthew 18 is is Matthew's counterpart to Luke's version in Luke 15. They both tell the story of the the lost sheep. And I'm I'm reading Matthew 18 with this just, I don't know, I'm just reading along. It's just my thing in the daytime, in the morning. And it struck me, it was like the Lord sort of highlight or bold, made the type space come alive for me. And I noticed that the shepherd left the flock of the 99 to find the one stupid sheep that got itself lost and went astray. And not only does he do it once, but he does it over and over again. And it, I mean, I know this is the, I know that's what Jesus does for us, but it just struck me as like totally illogical. Like, why would he do that? And as I sort of pressed into it, and anyway, what I came to roundabout was, this theme, I think I started in a long way gone and I finish it maybe, or at least I continue it in the waterkeeper that we are worth rescue. No matter, no matter what bad decisions we make, no matter how far we get from home, no matter what awful stuff we find ourselves wrapped in, that there is still one who will leave the 99 to come save us. And this this theme or this idea, idea that the needs of the one outweigh those of the 99 was something I really wanted to write about. So that's how the book ended up. That's that's the book that you have. It came out of that. Um, I love the conversations about identity and redemption. Again, I'm talking with author Charles Martin. We're talking about The Waterkeeper. It is a novel that needs to be on your 
must-read summer reading list. Uh, we do have a handful of copies to give away. If you want to enter the drawing for those, simply text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, page 186 of the copy I have, which I have an ARC, so I don't know that um, mine is exactly uh, page numbered the same as all the rest, but this is going to sound, you know, obviously you wrote it, you're going to know about this. This is the, this is really the identity conversation um, in the middle of the book. And it's this conversation about uh, people can't answer the first question, who am I, mm-hmm. until right. they until they know the answer to the second question, whose am I? Now, right. this, this page, <laughs> this page is the gospel. Um, but this isn't the only page in this novel where the gospel um, is told in a, in, a, in a narrative context in a way that is so real. I mean, one of the things that you've done here um, is you have equipped us as Christians in the culture today to be able to share something in a book club or with a group of people who have no idea that um, Freetown is a real place. <laughs> yeah. I I don't want to act like I have some big prison ministry because I don't, but I go there some and I, you know, they're interestingly inmates read my books and so they have book clubs. And so I've been invited into a lot of prisons and one of the things I latched onto in, in, in spending time and praying with inmates is what you just picked up on on that page, which, which is this idea of identity. And I think it, and I say this in the book, it is the cry of the human heart. It's really different, difficult for me as a, as a, as a child of God to know who I am until I know whose I am. I think identity determines or ownership determines identity. And that's why I say in here, this is why so many young men gravitate towards gangs is because they feel a sense of identity or, or that grows out of their, their brotherhood, although it is a false brotherhood in, in gangs. And so anyway, it was just that idea of, I remember looking into just talking to a couple of inmates and this, this whole idea of who I am they didn't feel like they were worth rescue. And a lot of these folks had done a lot of horrible things and they they felt like they were beyond redemption. And it, and I just, you know, the spirit of God, the, the, the blood of Jesus cries a better word than that of Abel. The blood of Abel cries, you're guilty. And the blood of Jesus whispers, you're innocent. I have redeemed you. And so somehow out of that place and having a heart for these people that, the human heart needs to know that I'm worth rescue, that I'm worth something to somebody. And I'm just amazed as I get, you know, brought into people's lives that there's some people who just flat out don't believe that. So if I could somehow figure out how to put it in a narrative and in a book, that's what I was trying to do. For those of you who, um, wow, who are desiring to have a story that, um, is true truth. Like it's, it's nonfiction. No, it's fiction. It's fiction. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, but it's true truth. Um, This is a, this is an excellent read. The Waterkeeper. I'm talking with author Charles Martin. We'll be right back.
All right, I'm talking with Charles Martin. He's New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of 13 novels. Uh, he is also the author of um, some nonfiction, which uh, I, we want to highlight as well. Um, we're talking today about The Waterkeeper. And um, so let me just confess. I'm just going to go ahead and confess. I don't I don't read a lot of novels. I don't read a lot of fiction. I just I don't. Um, this is like probably this. This is the second novel I've read this year. Um, maybe third, maybe third. Um, and so let me ask you this. Uh, now that I, uh, want to know more and more about Murph, um, and everybody else, uh, is he a character that has already appeared? Um, is this the first novel he appears in? In, And then, um, am I right in the walk off of this? Um, to that I should be joyfully anticipating um, that you are going to tell me another story? Yeah, this is the first one in my career where I've ever really set out and said, hey, I want to turn this into a trilogy. And I, I don't, maybe I got ahead of myself. Maybe I should have just made a, you know, a, a, a two-part series or something, but I've actually got it slated as a trilogy. So there will be three stories as of now involving Murphy Shepard. I'm in the middle of the second one kind of as we speak. And I, the reason I think I did that is I got about halfway in and I fell in love with the characters and and especially mm-hmm. Murphy and Bones, the two of them. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Clay, Gunner, Angel, Ellie, Summer, even the girl they find in the, you know, destroyed house in West Palm, Casey. I just these characters like I thought, you know what? I think there may be another story here. So anyway, I'm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm t- oh, yeah. I'm there's another. This there's another story here. Yeah, this well, uh, this is the kind of book that inspires um, fan fiction. Well, I mean, it just does. This is the kind of book that inspires fan fiction. I mean, I would, I would, I don't do fan fiction. I don't even hardly know what it is. <laughs> but I would get on a fan fiction uh, site because I I have already mused about um, some of the storylines, you know, related to some of these people. Um, Gunner uh, is potentially my favorite character. Um, yeah. And uh, joy, perseverance, strength, commitment, um, mm-hmm. uh, the one who whose love is absolutely uh, could care less where you've been and what you've done and what you smell like. Man, he is right, right. there, isn't he? Right. I mean, I just God. you would you would not <sighs> believe the amount of and I won't blow it. I won't. This is I'll, I'll, you would not believe the amount of email I've gotten about him and people being very angry and then very not angry with me. So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's just so fun. All right. I am talking with author Charles Martin. We're talking about The Waterkeeper. Yes, I have some copies to give away. Uh, I know I've already heard from a lot of you who are interested, which is so great. Uh, text the word book to 877-933-2484. Um, talk with me about... Uh, Names, because uh, Murphy Shepard is a name, but David Bishop is a name. Um, Pettibone, Pettibone is an interesting uh, name. Um, Talk with us a little bit about how characters grow in your imagination, and then how do characters arrive at their name? That's a great question. Interestingly, The Waterkeeper is now my 14th novel. So I've got probably a hundred characters kind of rolling around my head, you know, in different names. And I think early in my career, they were easier to come by. 
now as I start crafting a character, finding a name that resonates with me takes a while. And I, I literally do. I spend time sort of just, I mean, I'm not above doing a Google search on names. And a lot of times I'll search for names in terms of how they sound. One syllable, two syllables. I don't know. I listen to people. I tell you what's another one is, you know, I sign a lot of books when I'm on book tour. And I pay attention to the names of the people that I'm signing for. And there have been several times where I've met somebody and I liked their name. And I said, ooh, that's good. I'm putting that in a book. And eventually they end up there. So, I don't know, the character kind of bubbles up. I see him in my head. You know, Murphy Murphy was a slowly evolving character in my head as I sort of walked around him and studied him. More things came to my attention. And I, I don't know. I just, his first name was not all that astounding. Murphy's sort of a regular name. And then I thought, hmm, okay, well, Shepard's pretty cool. So, and David a, was a shepherd. Yeah, sure. <laughs> no, I yeah. love it. I just the whole the whole name thing. There's a name game going on uh, in this book that's really really fun as well. Talk with us also um, about and again, I I know that you know it it's birthed in your in your holy imagination. So I mean, I recognize I can't ask you as an author like how does this work? How do you come up with this idea? But um, is there an, a, a a notable inspiration behind, let's say? the the touching of the one finger and then the fingers like that that process that takes place and is so significant in the book or the um the numbers um you know two two like the coming up with the way that numbers just referring to to numbers um leads us somewhere else are those things that you've experienced somewhere or those are like genuinely hatched in your imagination because they're both brilliant no those well those two genuinely bubbled up and out of my imagination. I can't, I don't, I don't know of any physical reference in my world that led me to those things. Now there probably is one. I just don't know that I'm aware of it. The whole communication with bones thing and the numbers and the fingers. And that was just, you know, I needed a way for them to communicate quietly. And that, that seemed to bubble up. I don't know if it works or not, but I think it works in the book. <laughs> all of those things, though, you know, it used to ding me early in my career. People would say, well, Charles Martin writes love stories. And I, I would, I would kind of cringe. And I would think, wait, wait a minute. I mean, you know, Mitch Rapp and Daniel Silva and Grisham and Baldacci, these are all people like they don't write love stories. They write these cool books. And I it used to kind of ding me like, why can't you put me in that category? And then I thought, you know, really, the only story I, I want to write is a love story. And I just. It's just the only thing that kind of strikes my fancy. The cool thing about the Waterkeeper, though, and I've heard this, and you said it early on, it does start rather quick, and I think it keeps that pace for a while. So I don't know. Maybe I turned a little bit of a corner in my writing and in my craft and my process in terms of stringing out tension and whatnot. It was a lot of fun to write, and I just felt like one scene sort of fell to the next. And it they just it, once I sort of grabbed a hold of – once we leave the the chapel on the island and Angel gets on the party boat and Murphy watches her leave, I feel like it sort of takes off. So Oh yeah. No, I completely agree. I can't I can't hardly wait to read uh to read what happens next. Um uh, you take us to places that uh, we want to go, and then you take us a lot of places we don't want to go as readers, um, and yet going <laughs> yeah. there is really, really essential. 
The book is The Waterkeeper. Charles Martin uh, is the author. You can check out all of his books at charlesmartinbooks.com. I do have copies of this one to give away. Text the word book to 877-933-2484. Charles, let me just, uh, let me walk off with this. It is not insignificant that um, Summer's reading is 13 books. Right. I took note of that. I took note of that. Yeah. Wow, Thank you, you really my friend. Oh, man, I, I've got a highlighter. I'm, I, I've been busy. <laughs> hey, thank you so much. We, we really, we heartily look forward to the next one. Thank you. Have a great day. All right, friends, that's literally all the time we've got today. Thank you so much for joining us. You can grab the podcast and share it with someone else. Go to MyFaithRadio.com a little later in the day. Oh, we've got a whole nother, we've got a whole nother conversation set up for tomorrow. Have a great day. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.